Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. In this episode, we're talking about the 1957 Platte River Encounter. That's correct, the 1957 Platte River Encounter. Now, you might remember that this year, 1957, there was this vast UFO wave that just seemed to take over the United States. Many famous cases, many encounters, even abductions. But we're going to focus on this Reinhold Smith contact claim to begin with. And this is from the website uh, IgnacioDarnade.com. I'll put a link there on the Buy Me a Coffee website. As always, thank you to the people that support the program over there and at Spotify. And let me also remind you to like, follow, and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. It doesn't cost anything. Okay, so they begin by saying in early 1957, this is November, a wave of UFO sightings hit the United States, beginning in Texas and quickly spreading throughout the country. One of the most spectacular reports came from a 60-year-old grain buyer, Reinhold O. Smith, a Bakersville of Bakersville, California. Late on the afternoon of the 5th, Smith showed up at the sheriff's office at Kearney, Nebraska, pale and shaken. He asked to see a minister then explained that he had just had an incredible experience. While driving along a sandy expanse near the Platte River, he saw a flash of light in the sky. When he went to investigate, he observed a blimp-shaped flying object resting on the ground. It was, he said, 100 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 14 feet high, and it caused his car engine to die when he got too close to it. He got out of the car and started toward the UFO only to be hit by a beam of light, which briefly paralyzed him. Two men came out of the craft and ushered him inside. Inside, he met the crew, four conventionally dressed men and two women who spoke high German to each other and German-accented English to him. After a brief conversation about the United States Space Satellite Program, Smith was asked to leave, and the craft departed. On his way to Kearney, the full impact of the experience hit Schmidt and he decided he had to walk with a man of the cloth. After calling on one who wasn't home, he went to the sheriff's office. Accompanied by Deputy Sheriff Dave Drake and Police Chief Thurston Nelson, Schmidt returned to the site of the landing, where three sets of footprints, two meeting the first, then advancing together and suddenly disappearing, were visible in the sand. The investigators also found a greenish, grease-like substance where the UFO allegedly had come down. Schmidt was held overnight in jail and grilled by skeptical police officers as well as two officers from the Continental Air Defense Command and U.S. Army Intelligence. By morning, authorities learned that Schmidt had, had served time for embezzlement in the Nebraska Penitentiary in 1938 and 39. They also recovered an empty can of green motor oil not far from the landing site and another empty can of the same material in Schmidt's trunk. Smith refused to take a polygraph test. On the evening of the 6th, two psychiatrists examined him and after two hours of questioning, decided that he believed what he was saying and therefore was mentally ill. Within 24 hours, he was placed in the Hastings State Hospital. He was released a few days later. 
But that's 1957. So <laughs> that's how people were frequently treated, I think, when they reported seeing UFOs or having made contact with aliens. And you can kind of understand why that might not have been a thing that a lot of people wanted to do. Now, as far as these aliens speaking uh, German to him, I wonder if that's if that's not how he interpreted it, because it was a language that he understood with the name, you know, last name of Schmidt. Secondly, the fact that these things would be talking to him about uh, the U.S. satellite program, also interesting. I don't know what he would know about that. That would be a particular interest to any kind of an ET. This whole thing could just be his interpretation of the encounter that he had. I mean, I think sometimes these things are so advanced that how we see them, how we interpret them, and the conversations that people have with these ET are oftentimes more just uh, projections of our own belief systems, our own selves, onto whatever these things are. He says, within short order, Smith was on the was on the contact T circuit, lecturing in the company of fellow space communicant Wayne S. Aho and Chicago UFO enthusiast John Otto, who charged that all the apparent incriminating evidence had been planted as part of a government conspiracy to smear the contactee, Otto, 1958. Smith was now claiming additional contacts. The first of these occurred on February 5th, 1958, when he saw a flying saucer land a few miles from Kearney and encountered Mr. X, captain of the crew he had encountered in November. Smith was taken for a short ride, during which X and his traveling companions informed Smith they were from Saturn. One evening in April, after a lecture in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Smith went for a walk and spotted X and a space woman in a black sports car. The three of them drove out into the country, and a saucer beamed them and the car inside. They talked for two hours. Other contacts followed. On one occasion, Smith was flown to the Arctic Circle. The ship plunged into the ocean and remained there for three hours, where Smith saw Russian submarines. and other adventures, he went into space and to Egypt, to learn the secrets of the Great Pyramid. Like all contactees, Smith was given a mission. Our space friends can show us the way to a new and wonderful world, he wrote, but they said that it is up to us to bring it about. There is so much to be done, and due to the present crisis on Earth, which affects the welfare of all our people, not a moment should be wasted in applying the solution to our problems, which have been given us. That just sounds so familiar to what we hear today from many of these experiencers. Sometimes people have experiences and they just say, well, that was interesting. Sometimes people have experiences and they feel compelled to go on the UFO circuit and tell the rest of us what we need to do. And what we need to do usually is not always that clear. Now, he goes on, he says, uh, Smith's career had peaked. Six months later in October, Smith went on trial in Oakland, California for grand theft. Alameda County prosecutors charged that he had bilked a widow, Eva Newcomb, out of $5,000. The money was to go into a worthless mining venture in Tulare County, where he claimed to have viewed quartz crystals from a spaceship. Smith further claimed, according to prosecutors, though Smith denied it, that these free energy crystals had healing powers. He acknowledged he had collected over $25,000 from elderly women, but insisted he had not done so through loving talk, as they charged. The jury saw Edge of Tomorrow, which Smith apparently thought would convince it of the authority of his contacts with the Centurions, but the prosecution countered this by summoning a young astronomer, Carl Sagan, to the stand. Sagan testified that Saturn could not possibly harbor human life. That is really funny. Boy, Carl Sagan, clear back in 1958. On October 26, after a seven-day trial, 
and four and a half hours of deliberation, a jury of seven men and five women convicted Smith. Subsequently, Judge Donald K. Quayle sentenced him to one to ten years in prison on two counts of grand theft. Smith's four years on the UFO stage had ended, and he slipped into obscurity. I think that's kind of a fascinating story. Now, whether this guy saw anything or not, I don't know. But it's just interesting to me how his life just uh, seemed to spiral out of control after that. Whether he, whether he really knew what he was doing, whether he believed that he'd found this place where he could he could you know mine valuable minerals out, or whether this was just a way that he took advantage of people that he met on this UFO circuit, I guess is something he knows, and we can only speculate on. Pretty much the story of the Platte River UFO contactee. Now, I want to take a look at another uh, pretty famous case that happened in 1957, which seems like it has a little more veracity to it. Now, this was a site that also happened in 1957, and it might be more believable to some people because the uh, star witness here was astronaut Gordon Cooper. I found this at thinkaboutitdocs.com. It says, 1957, astronaut Gordon Cooper witnesses UFO landing at Edwards Air Force Base. It just lists the date as 1957. Location, Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, gives it a high classification that says, observation of an object in close proximity to witness where physical traces, impression, burn, medical effects that are, are left or electrical effect uh, or heat are felt, and this uh, considered a close encounter of the second kind. They don't have a time on the duration. It just says number of objects, one size of object, 30 feet across, distance 20 to 30 yards, shape of object, saucer, shiny, silver, and smooth, and then number of witnesses, multiple, source, John Cook. I had a camera crew filming the installation when they spotted the saucer. They filmed it as it flew overhead, then hovered, extended three legs as landing gear, and slowly came down to land on a dry lake bed. It was a classic saucer, shiny, silver, and smooth, about 30 feet across. It was pretty clear it was an alien craft. So this, in other words, this thing was so advanced that he didn't think there's any way it could have been man-made. And then it tells, says the Ford Port in 1957, Cooper was one of an elite band of test pilots at Edward Air Force Base in California in charge of several advanced projects, including the installation of a precision landing system. Quote, I had a camera filming the installation when they spotted a saucer. They filmed it as it flew overhead, then hovered, extended three legs as landing gear, and slowly came down to land on a dry lake bed. These guys were all pro cameramen, so the picture quality was very good. The camera crew managed to get within 20 or 30 yards of it, filming all the time. It was a classic saucer, shiny, silver, and smooth, about 30 feet across. It was pretty clear it was an alien aircraft. As they approached closer, it took off. When his camera crew handed over the film, Cooper followed standard procedures and contacted Washington to report the UFO, and all heck broke loose, he said. After a while, a high-ranking officer said, when the film was developed, I was to put it in a pouch and send it to Washington. He didn't say anything about me not looking at the film. That's what I did when it came back from the lab, and it was all there, just like the camera crew reported. When the Air Force later started Operation Blue Book to collate UFO evidence and reports, Cooper says he mentioned the film evidence, but the film was never found, supposedly. Blue Book was strictly a cover-up anyway. Cooper revealed he's convinced an alien craft crashed at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, and aliens were discovered in the wreckage. I had a good friend at Roswell, a fellow officer. He had to be careful about what he said, but it's so... But, but it sure wasn't a weather balloon, like the Air Force cover story. 
He made it clear to me that what crashed was a craft of alien origin and members of the crew were recovered. Why has the government kept its UFO secrets for so many years? It started in World War II when the government didn't want people to know about UFO reports. In the case, in the case they panicked, said Cooper. They would have been fearful. It was a superior enemy technology that we had no defense against. Then it got worse in the Cold War for the same reason. So they told one untruth. They had to tell another to cover that one. Then another, then another. It just snowballed. And right now, I'm convinced a lot of very embarrassed government officials are sitting there in Washington trying to figure out a way to bring the truth out. They know it's going to come out one day, and I'm sure it will. America has a right to know. Wow, that's really neat. It's got some pictures here from different UFO sightings. So you kind of have a contrast between two do, two different UFO encounters. One from a guy who's been convicted, you know, of crimes, larceny, whatnot, crimes of deception, basically, who says he has this, had this experience where he had a UFO encounter, uh, was taken on board and was shown things, was given this kind of a, uh, a generalized message that we needed to shape things up here on Earth. And then you have a uh, national hero, Gordon Cooper, an astronaut, who says, no, I've seen film of one landing here at Ed Edwards Air Force Base, just showing up, basically saying, yes, here we are. It's it's just two of these different encounters that happened in 1957 that I think are so far apart. But the debunkers like to focus on the ones like the first fellow, Mr. Smith. There's some questions around his personal character. Even though he did show up at the, up at the sheriff's office that day, and did they said he said he seemed to be frightened, upset, as if he had actually seen something. So what happened after there, we don't know. Now, I want to look at this one last case from 1957 before we close this out. And so we talked about the Platte River encounter. We've talked about uh, the Gordon encounter there at Edwards Air Force Base. Here's one from... Uh, Texas in 1957. This is from HowStuffWorks.com. It says, the 1957 Loveland UFO encounter. Uh, on November 2nd, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 2 into orbit. Within hours, coincidentally or otherwise, a UFO wave erupted in the United States. At first, the wave appeared to be concentrated in a small backwater area of West Texas, where a series of remarkable UFO encounters took place. The sheriff's office in the town of Loveland scoffed that evening when a frightened man called to report that he and a friend had driven on a country highway four miles west of town and had seen a 200-foot-long rocket rise up from a field and rush toward their truck. Terrified of an imminent collision, the two flew out of the cab and hurled themselves into the ditch. As the UFO passed just above the truck, rocking it with a blast as loud as thunder, the vehicle's engine died and its lights went out, only to resume a few seconds later when the mysterious object disappeared from view. Wow, that's amazing. That almost sounds like this thing is, is one of these interdimensional craft where what they are interpreting is this uh, sound of a rocket. Who knows if it's, if, it's, if, if it's from whatever power source this thing is using or if that's just the sonic boom being broken. But obviously these guys had an amazing encounter with this thing. And what did the sheriff do? Well, they laughed at him, which I guess is better than putting them uh, in a psych ward for a few days. An hour later, another caller recounted his experience with an identical UFO that had also interfered with the electrical functioning of his car. The scoffing stopped, and sheriff's officers soon found themselves handling comparable stories from frightened observers who had seen a giant, light, and engine-killing UFO at locations west, east, and north of Loveland. At 1.30 a.m., Sheriff Weir Clem and a deputy saw the UFOs themselves. 
A few, a few minutes later, Ray Jones, Loveland's fire marshal, experienced motor difficulty when the same or similar phenomena was in view. The official Air Force explanation, ball lightning, but ball lightning never exceeds more than a few feet in diameter and is usually only inches around. Project Blue Book claimed an electrical storm was in process during the sightings. There was no storm. By 1957, Project Blue Book's investigations, quote unquote, were perfunctory at best. Even its chief scientific advisor, astronomer J. Allen Hynek, would later remark on the absence of evidence that ball lightning can stop cars and put out headlights. I mean, that's more ball lightnings than most people have in a lifetime sightings. Uh, yeah, so that's just a quick little uh, synopsis there. And well, let's look at another uh, episode here from uh, Loveland, Texas, because I think this is where a lot of this stuff kicked off uh, in these 1957 sightings at. Now we'll take one last look at this 1957 case from Texas as we just compare these different cases from 1957 uh, and how they affected uh, the UFO uh, community. This is from everythingglubbick.com. It's dated uh, November 2nd, 2017. Keep in mind that'd be six years ago. It says, whatever happened in Loveland, it became a world famous mystery. On November 2nd, 1957, 60 years ago, Loveland became home to one of the strangest mysteries in U.S. history. A large, bright object appeared to hover above several different roads outside of town, causing cars to lose power and shut off. The object was described as egg or oval-shaped by some. Others said it was more like the shape of a torpedo or rocket. All the witnesses reported the object was very bright. It was described as orange or blue to green. Some described it like a fireball. One witness said it made a thundering or rumbling sound. I hit the ground, man, said eyewitness Pedro Sacido. Sacido spoke in 2003. At that time, he said, I started saying something's going on here. So I hit the ground. I got almost to the top of the truck. That's when the truck started shaking. Lebanon police reported a total of 15 phone calls related to the bright object that night. The then sheriff of Hockley County, Weir Clem, reported seeing something strange about 300 yards ahead of him when he went to investigate. Possible explanations have been offered over the years, such as weather phenomena like St. Elmo's fire, which is created by electrical discharge in the atmosphere. Other possible explanations included a reflection of burning gas from low cloud cover or an extremely rare weather event known as ball lightning. UFO buffs say it remains one of the best cases to show the extraterrestrial life visited our planet. <laughs> Interesting. So you had this UFO wave happening basically down there in Texas, clear up into uh, Nebraska, something was going on. And it's interesting to see how people react to it in different ways. Uh, whether you're an astronaut, whether uh, you're a farm worker down in Texas, or whether you uh, are a grain buyer with a somewhat sketchy uh, criminal record in Nebraska, is going to make a big difference in how you're treated. But what I find out so fascinating about these cases is the similarity in all of them, you know, how these people had these encounters where they were really impacted by them, where they're impacted enough to report to the authorities. And sometimes uh, the reactions of the authorities was simply to scoff somebody, and sometimes it was to have that person locked up for a few days. And that's why I think that the Platte River encounter there with Mr. Smith is important, because even though this guy had a somewhat sketchy uh, past, let's say, and even though it seemed like this encounter that he had definitely spiraled into an overall uh, negative impact on his life. It just goes to show, I think, that these things uh, are seen and encountered by people from all different walks of life, whether you're a hero astronaut like like uh, Mr. Cooper there, or whether you are somebody who's been locked up for crimes 
like Mr. Smith's, these things don't seem to be any respecter of people. And each person's encounter and observation of them does at some level seem to be a very intensely personal thing. And there were an awful lot of encounters with these things in 1957. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out. Thank <music> you.